Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there's been much said uh, about millennials. There's been a lot of ink spilled about millennials, but I want to talk this morning, not just about millennials, I want to talk about what's being called Generation Z. These are the, the people that are coming after millennials. For, for many of us uh, who are parents, whose children were a part of the uh, children's sermon, this is the generation of those kids. And so I say all this to not say that I'm talking about my children, because I don't always want to mention my kids in sermon, but all of our children as a whole. Generation Z. And one of the things that I've noticed about Generation Z is that they use abbreviations for words all the time. If you've spent any time around a, a, a kid between the ages of 8 and 12, maybe even older, what you notice is they abbreviate everything. And they abbreviate things that don't even necessarily need abbreviation. Uh, for instance, uh, my children call tablets tabs. Hey dad, can I, can I get the tab? And, I, and here I am old and, and old as they would say. And I'm thinking, Oh, do you want that terrible soda that was popular in the seventies? No, no, don't drink that son. That's awful. That's bad. And actually it was funny because as I was thinking about this this morning, um, out in the lobby, they have one of those machines designed to steal your money. Um, but the, it suckers you in with the chance to win like an electronic device. If you, if you poke the thing just right. It's got a little maneuver. And actually, actually, it's funny because one of the things that they're advertising that you can win is a Galaxy Tab. <laughs> right? There's this abbreviation. The other day, um, one of my, my children um, said that he wanted a treat and we have we've doled out our our Halloween candy. We still have it um, because we only let him have like a piece or two at a time. And he said, Dad, can I have some can? <laughs> It's just two syllables, right? I mean, it's not, you don't need to abbreviate that much of a word, right? You say candy. You don't need extra breath, you know. You're not saying some big word like, like transubstantiation, you know. You don't need to shorten it. It's just, it's candy. One of the other words that, that, that one of the Generation Z people who lives in my house um, said the other day was, uh, hey, Dad, can we, uh, can we play this video game? But let's not play for serious. Let's just, let's keep it cash. <laughs> because apparently keeping it cash means keeping it casual. And let's be honest, we like keeping things casual, right? What do we love about every Friday at most of our offices? It's, we love it because it's casual Friday, right? We love casual Friday. We love casual dress. We went out the other night um, to, to a nicer restaurant, took my wife out for our anniversary, and we're sitting there about to leave the house in jeans. And she says, oh, no, wait, we're going to a nice restaurant. Do, I, do we need to change? And I said, honey, this is St. Petersburg. <laughs> we're in jeans. That means we're dressed up, right? Shorts and flip-flops. There were other people at this very nice restaurant in shorts and flip-flops. That's, we, we like things casual. We like to dress casual. We like our meetings to be casual. And most of us like our religion to be casual. Ooh, that was a sharp right turn, wasn't it? That was a, that was a quick transition. 
But let's be honest. When you think about it, most of your friends who aren't Christians don't really care that you go to church. That doesn't bother them. That's, that may be a little bit different. It may be a little bit odd. But if you just go to church, this is not that big of a deal. So long as you keep your religion casual. So long as it's not a very big deal. Because in our culture, there is something about us where our default, our default is to be disaffected. Where our default is, nothing should really affect me that much. And so we want to keep everything a little bit far enough away from us. Far enough away that it doesn't really affect my life. That it doesn't really change anything about me. And this is true of our religion, but it's true of anything else, right? It's not cool to be excited about anything. Everything we're expected to be, yeah, that's going to be fine. I mean, yeah, that's, that's nice. We want to sort of stay away. But if your religion, if Christianity begins to affect you, begins to change your life, begins to really grab a hold of your heart and your mind, it gets weird. Because all of a sudden, you don't spend your money like everyone else around you. All of a sudden, your relationships don't look the same as everyone around you. All of a sudden, you're the weird preachy one because you won't do the same things as your friends do. Because at work, all of a sudden, you're the one who, who's changed. And it's interesting because most of us don't experience this. We don't ever get any arched eyebrows about our faith. Because for most of us, we're apathetic about our salvation. And when we're, when we're apathetic about what God has done for us, what we're doing is we're actually robbing ourselves of our hope and our purpose. Because we keep everything at arm's length, because we keep everything as not that big of a deal, we're robbing ourselves of our hope and we're robbing ourselves of our purpose in life. And that's, that's one of the things that Peter is beginning to show to his people. Last week we started looking at Peter's first letter to the churches in Asia Minor, what we would now call Turkey. And as we looked at it, we saw that he had a lot to say about hope. And actually, a, a big chunk of what we're going to read and study this morning is actually also very much about that same idea of hope. And so as we come to this this morning, I'd like you to stand together as we read God's word. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. 
So we keep everything cash. We keep everything casually at an arm's length away from us. And when we do that, we miss out on hope. We miss out on purpose. And what Peter wants to do is show that our faith is so much bigger, so much more wonderful, so much more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And he begins to do that as he transitions last week out of talking about hope to talking about our salvation this week. When he does that, he ties it and says, look, this is not something new. Christianity did not begin with Jesus. Christianity stretches all the way back to God creating the world. It stretches back to the garden and to the promise that our sins do not have the last word over us. He says that the Old Testament is all about our salvation. Now, this is a bit of a stumbling block, both for those of us who are Christians and for those of us who are not. Because let's be honest, if we were to just cherry pick, open up the Old Testament and find some weird stories, guess what? You can find some weird stories in the Old Testament. You can find strange things. I mean, when we went through the life of David uh, a few months ago here at City Church, David is not the sanitized, clean saint that we want to make them, is he? When we look at the book of Judges, the book of Judges has all sorts of wild stories in it. And if we want to go through and just kind of cherry pick and go, okay, let's find a good reason to say that the Bible doesn't matter, guess what? You're going to go to the Old Testament. You're going to go try to find that. And so what happens is, for many of us, what we try to do is we try to minimize that. We try to say, oh, well, uh, uh, we try to hide from it. In fact, it's actually uh, quite popular right now in popular theology to sort of say that we need to divorce the Old Testament, to say we need to, to get away from it, that that's, you know, we're Christians. Let's just look at the, the words of Jesus. And maybe, maybe we'll include Paul and the apostles, but, but that whole Old Testament thing, let's, let's let that go. Let's, let's move on from that. And while that's gotten popular recently, this tendency goes back to the earliest parts of the church, and it's throughout history. There was a man in the second century, his name was Marcion, and he cut out the entire Old Testament out of his Bible, and then he cut out parts of the New Testament that he didn't like too. Uh, some of you have heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where Thomas Jefferson, as he would read through the Bible, he would do it with a penknife. And anytime he came to something that didn't fit his worldview, didn't fit what he wanted God to be, he would just take his knife and carefully cut that part out of his Bible. What happens when we do that is what we end up with is a version of ourselves projected into the heaven. When we cherry pick the parts of the Bible that we want to believe, when we cherry pick the stories about God that we like, all we're doing is recreating God after our own image. And when you do that, it begins to get you into all sorts of trouble. Because then God is just somebody in the heavens who shares your views on politics and morality. Then the God that you have can never critique you, can never say you're wrong, can never call you to live a different way. And so we want to get rid of the Old Testament because there's stuff in there that says what you're doing is wrong. There's stuff in there that says what I'm doing is wrong. 
Now, I do want to take an aside uh, this morning, just for a second, to explain one of the ways that the Old Testament works. When we think about the Old Testament, a lot of times we think about the law of God. And when we think about the law of God, it's helpful to understand that God wasn't just setting up a church in the Old Testament. He was also setting up a religion for them to follow, to point them to Christ. He was also setting up a nation state. And so there are some of the laws in the Old Testament that are moral. Don't steal. Doesn't matter what country you live in. Doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are. It's wrong to steal. Those are the moral laws of the Old Testament. Those still apply to us today. Jesus didn't come along and say, okay, I died for your sins. Go steal all you want. It's fine. Be cool. Do whatever you want. You know what? I know that the Old Testament said don't murder, but... You know, maybe a little bit. No, no. No, no, that moral law still applies to us. And then there were the laws in the Old Testament that talked about how they were to conduct themselves as the people of Israel, what their religious ceremonies were to look like. And all of those things were meant to point us ahead to Jesus. So when we look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament, those were meant to show us a picture of Jesus. When we look at the different festivals and feasts, all of those things were meant to point us ahead to Jesus. Now, there are some other laws in the Old Testament that were all about how Israel was to run itself as a nation. Now, guess what? We don't live in that nation. That, that nation no longer exists. And so those laws were for those moments. But for most of us, what we really don't like is the laws that tell us that we're not great. The laws that tell us what we're doing wrong. And so we want to throw all of them away. Because I don't like it when you're honest about how I'm wrong. Right? You don't like it when I'm honest about how you are wrong. How many of us love bad performance reviews at work? Zero. Zero of us love bad performance reviews at work. Right? When somebody comes to us and says, hey, you're not doing your job, you're going to be put on probation. No. No, I don't like that. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't like to be critiqued. And so for most of us, we just ignore the Old Testament. But what Peter says is no. When you read the Old Testament, what you see is that this isn't new. That God has been at work. God has been at work throughout all of human history. He's been at work in hard times. He's been at work in good times. He's been at work in blessing. He's been at work in darkness. God is overall and in all and working all things together. That's beautiful. And that's what Peter says is, look, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, they knew that what they were seeing wasn't the end. They knew that what they were seeing was leading up to something. Even Adam and Eve, when they sinned, God said, look, I'm going to send you a son born of your line who's going to fix this mess that you made. He's going to be the one that reverses this curse that I'm putting on you. And even then, when Eve had her first child, Cain, what does she say? She's like super excited, right? Like, look, look, I, I got a man from the Lord, is literally what she says. I, 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 got, a, I got a man child. Maybe this is the man child that's going to fix this. Spoiler alert, his name was Cain, didn't work out. <laughs> but even Eve... Even Eve was anticipating that something is coming. And all of the Old Testament prophets were wishing they would knew, who is this that's coming? What's his name? What is this going to be? And guess what? You and I, standing here at City Church, have the beautiful privilege of knowing his name. 
of knowing when he came, of knowing the whole story of his life. It's funny that Peter brings this up because Peter, raised as a good Jew, totally missed the mission of Jesus. One day, Jesus and Peter were walking along. Jesus says to Peter, who do people say that I am? And some people said, oh, some people think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people said, oh, other people think you're a prophet. And Peter goes, oh, no. (laughs) Disciples, get in line. I got the right answer. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, you got it. That's exactly who I am. I am the Messiah. Now, let me tell you, as the Messiah, what I'm going to do is I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter stands up and goes, no, 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 no. And and literally stands in between Jesus in Jerusalem, like stops him on the road and says, no, 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 you're not going to go to Jerusalem and do that. You're not going to suffer. Even if I have to die instead of you, you're not going to do this. And it's funny because right after Jesus congratulates Peter on saying that he's the Messiah, Jesus turns around and calls Peter and says, get out of my way, Satan. Right? Peter had missed this, and now Peter sees it. He sees all of the beauties of the Old Testament pointing ahead to the suffering and the glory of Jesus. This is an incredible, beautiful story of redemption that we all get to see, that we all get to be a part of. It's so wonderful, Peter, Peter says, that even angels look down and are, and are amazed by it. Now, Peter says this not so that we can have weird discussions about, oh, I wonder what that means. I wonder, angels, huh? I wonder, do they, do they have telescopes? You know, what kind of vision do angels have? And no, no, no. He's not trying to get us to speculate on the way angels work. What he's trying to show us is that our salvation is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is so amazing that even angels want to understand about it. But we remain mostly disaffected. City Church, God is at work in your life. City Church, angels are hyped. Angels are excited about what God is doing in your life. And for most of us, our response is neat. Our response is the the, the response of of a busy parent whose child wants to tell them about some obscure piece of child culture. I'm, I'm in the middle of cooking. I'm sorry, I don't have time to learn about the careful nuances of Beyblade toys. There's literally 800 degree cast iron right here. And and do you want to tell me about battle tops, apparently? Right? No, no. No, this is how beautiful and wonderful it is, but we are dis affected. Which begs the question, why? Why don't we have this sense of wonder in our hearts when we think about what God has done for us? I think one of the reasons that we don't is because because our faith is out of sight, out of mind. It's not integrated into the daily rhythms, the hourly rhythms, the moment-by-moment rhythms of our life. We don't talk to other people, Christian or not, about Jesus. We don't have community. We don't have friendships where it's common for us to talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives. And so because we don't have those sort of friendships, because we don't engage in that community, our faith becomes something that's just out of sight, out of mind. But I think the other reason that we lose the wonder of our salvation 
is because for us to see it as wonderful, we have to admit that we are broken and sinful and in need of it. One of the things we often talk about here at City Church is the degree to which you believe you have been forgiven is the degree to which you believe the gospel, the message of Jesus is beautiful. If you think you're kind, if you think you're like a pretty good person who just needs Jesus to help them get across the finish line, then Jesus is kind of a nice, that's, that's really helpful of Jesus. But if you believe that you have stuff, that your heart is darker than you want to admit, and you've, you've looked at that darkness and seen that the only way that that can be changed is by Jesus, and if you've seen Jesus start to change those areas in your life, guess how you feel about him? You are not nonplussed. You're amazed. You stand in wonder. wonder. And that's what Peter is calling us to. He's calling us to stand in wonder. To look, yes, at our sin, but look at what great a salvation we have. Great a redemption story we have in Jesus. And Peter says, as we begin to think about this, as we reflect on the fact that our, our story of redemption is rooted in the entire Bible, that it's so wonderful that angels wonder about it. He says, as we begin to do this, it will begin to change us. He says, if this is what we believe... It's going to change the way that we interact with our lives. He says, therefore, be, be sober-minded. Prepare your minds with hope. Now, a lot of us like to get hung up on that, that prepare your minds part. Because our default, especially here at City Church, because we're a Presbyterian church, tends to be the guy with the biggest brain has the holiest heart. The guy who knows the most theology or the girl who knows the most theology, is the one who is most right with God. So if you can quote Calvin or some obscure Puritan that I don't even know, right? That must mean you're holy. But that's just not the case. Because what he says first is that we need to train our affections. You see, the way into our heart... The way into the way that the gospel gets into us is not simply by an information dump. Most of us can think through the Rolodex of people we know and find somebody who knows more about Jesus and the Bible than we do who hates God. I can think of several friends who I went to seminary with who are way smarter than I am who hate God. It is not just our brains and getting the right information dumped into us that change us. It is our affections. That's why he says that the primary thing we need to do is set our hope on what God has done for us. Because hope is something that happens in our affections, not something that just happens in our brain. The change that Jesus brings us isn't just something where we go, oh, well, now I know that God's in charge of everything, so that makes it all okay. Think about that. In the face of tragedy, if somebody tells you, well, God's in control, how consoling is that? When you just had a major and significant tragedy or hard thing happen in your life, well, you know what? God's in control. Look, let me be honest. As a pastor, when people have told that to me, my instinct sometimes is to throw my shoulders back and to clench my fist and to have to make sure that I keep them down by my side because my instinct is to raise them, to show some hands. 
Why? Because just saying God is in charge doesn't change us. Does it? No. It's learning that with our heart. It's learning that with our affections. And so all of a sudden, change in the Christian life becomes viewing all of our life through the miracle of resurrection. That God has already begun to change the world. That we live in between D-Day and V-Day. Some of you guys are, are war fans. Some of, some of you are people who, who enjoy looking at the, the war, uh, World War II. And on D-Day, when we took over the beaches of Normandy, it was, it was all but over. That was the last big stronghold. Now, was the war actually over? No, there was a long way to go from those beaches to the German capital. But at that point, the great victory had been won. And now it was a matter of marching toward the final victory. City Church, that's where we live. The resurrection of Jesus has started something new in your life and mine. The resurrection of Jesus has started something new in this world where no longer is it just dark and there is no hope. No longer do we have to wonder what is God going to do with this story of redemption. No longer do we have to ask what time or place is going to be. No, God has said, no, I have sent Jesus and he has died and he has rose again. Never to die again. And so what begins to change us is setting our affection on that. Setting our hope on what Jesus has already done for us. You know, some churches and and even us in the past have made part of their liturgy, part of the things that they say and do at church to say the mystery of the Christian faith. The mystery of the Christian faith is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And as we say that, and as some of those churches say that week after week, we're reminding ourselves not just of the death of Jesus, where we find forgiveness of sins, but the resurrection of Jesus, where the world changes, where our lives start to become new, and the anticipation that Christ is going to come again, that this is not the last word. And so as we think through this, we find a gospel that is full of wonder. And so, Peter says, as we do this, we become serious. Now, this doesn't mean that we're serious all the time. I remember I had a friend when I was in college say that maturity is not being very mature all the time. Maturity is knowing when you can be immature and when it's not appropriate to be. Right? Like, like there are jokes that I would tell to my children based on functions of our body that all happen to us that I would not tell in a sermon. Right? It's knowing, it's knowing when those things are appropriate. And so as we begin to change in our life, as we begin to mature, what happens is we begin to discern and know when it's the time to be serious and when it's the time to have fun, when it's the time to have joy and when it's the time to be sober minded, when it's not time to be angry but thoughtful, engaged with the heart of the gospel. But not only that, if we see what God has done for us and what the resurrection is as wonderful, it's going to make us intentional about the way that we work. It's going to make us intentional in our relationships. It's going to change the way that we look at the ways that we rest, the ways that we find pleasure. You see, the resurrection of Jesus says 
that every area of your life is affected and being made new. City Church, this is the case. It is wonderful. It started way before you could ever imagine. Angels long to look into it. But City Church, the beauty of this is that it affects everything in our lives. May God begin to do that sort of thing in your heart and mind. Let's pray.